0: Hey there, I'm Kristen Carr, Women's Minister here at Johnson Ferry, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to the JF Women Bible Study Podcast. I'm so glad you're taking time to tune in. It may just be the best decision of your week. Our goal with Online Bible Study is to help you find time to be in the Word amidst your busy schedules and full lives. I'm praying these next few minutes will be life-giving, encouraging, and challenging as your Bible study leader walks you through a fresh week of unpacking truth from God's Word. As she digs into your study today, she'll provide resources and suggest a little homework to help you get the most out of this online Bible study experience. So, ladies, are you ready? Grab your Bible and let's get started. Hello, welcome to Truth Plus Grace, My name is Tiffany Grayson, and this is Chapter 5, Restored. 1 Peter 5.10 says, After your season of suffering, God in all his grace will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Do you know why? It reminds me that suffering is necessary. And if you're following along with notes, friend, that's your first fill-in-the-blank. Suffering is necessary. Necessary, you might ask. Why? Well, here comes your next fill in the blank. Without suffering, there is no time of reflection. Without reflection, we don't need, we don't realize the need to repent. Repenting removes the obstacles between you and your relationship with God. Repenting restores your relationship with God. I'm going to repeat that. Without suffering, there is no time of reflection. Without reflection, we don't realize the need to repent. Repenting removes the obstacles between you and your relationship with God. Repenting restores your relationship with God. Let's think about that for a moment. Reflection is a key component in our relationship with God. If I were to look up the word reflection in the dictionary, here's what I'd find, and I did put this in your notes with a few fill-in-the-blanks. First, we'd find it, as a thought, an idea or opinion formed as a result of meditation. Secondly, it can be defined as consideration of some subject matter, an idea or purpose, purpose. Thirdly, it's the production of an image by or as if by a mirror, a mirror. Let's dig into the scripture for further discussion. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. As a reminder, when I read from the Bible, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. You're welcome to follow along with me or just sit back and listen as I read. But before we get started, let me give you a little background on the book of Acts. Acts is your fill in the blank. The book of Acts immediately follows the four Gospels, and it's a continuation of the account by Dr. Luke. This book is the story of the spread of the gospel, how followers of Jesus spread the good news to new regions within the world. The book of Acts is broken down into three distinct sections, and each section focuses on a particular audience, personality, or significant phase of their goal. Now, as a side note, you might remember that Dr. Luke was a close confidant and traveling companion of Paul. He had multiple opportunities to interview Paul and Peter and John and many other disciples for the information that he includes in this book. Today, and here comes your next fill-in-the-blank, we're going to settle into a section written for the Gentiles, the Gentiles, that includes a couple of events in the life of Paul. Now, who was Paul? Well, you may have heard of him. He's a famous character in the Bible, and because he's so well-known, many often think of him as one of Jesus' original disciples. But he was not. In fact, scholars cannot find any proof that Paul ever met or had any direct contact with Jesus at all. It does appear, though, that he may have been at many of the same events as Jesus. Now, Paul was born in Tarsus, Turkey. He was Jewish and a proud member of the Pharisees as an adult. His family was from the tribe of Benjamin. And although you may know him as Paul, at birth... He was named Saul, after the first king of Israel, who was also a Benjaminite. He was well-educated. He knew about the laws and the prophets. He was fluent in several languages, including Hebrew, Phoenician, and Greek. He was a Roman citizen, which is interesting, and it was a birthright from his father. You might want to remember this for later in our story. The city where he was born, called Tarsus, was not a Jewish city. In fact, it was Greek-influenced, with both Greek languages and Greek literature prominently featured. Saul, as he was known at the time, was a tent maker by trade. The town of Tarsus was known for making goat's hair cloth, called siliceum. This cloth was woven and made into tents, sails, awnings, and cloaks. It was a very good trade, and Saul was probably very financially successful as a result. Now, some important background information about Saul, and this is a fill in the blank, some imp- important information about Saul. And I've got some bullet points for you. First of all, Saul was present, or he was there, during the execution of the first Christian martyr named Stephen. He was there during the execution of the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. And I put a verse there as a reference. Acts seven hundred fifty eight says And when they, the council of the priests, had driven him, Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's our guy, that's Saul. And this was Saul's first appearance in scripture. Then our second bullet point Saul agreed with the council. In fact, he believed that Stephen should have been put to death. Acts 8.1 says, and this is in your notes, and Saul was in, a hearty, in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Well, that tells you right there, he was not a fan of the followers of Jesus. Thirdly, and even though um, he was religious and had studied even to be a rabbi, Saul did not initially believe that Jesus was the Messiah. His position on the matter changed drastically later in life, though. Today we'll begin our story with Saul on his journey to Damascus, and that's a fill in the blank for you, friend. We'll begin our story with Saul on his journey to Damascus. He was on a mission from the high priest to arrest any and all Christ believers in Damascus and return with them to Jerusalem so that they would stand trial. Something very important happened on that trip. Turn with me to Acts 9. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. It's a little bit of a long passage, so stick with me here. Acts 9, starting with verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues, synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, capital way, Both men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city. And it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without his sight, and neither ate nor drank. Okay, friends, let's unpack this. Saul was traveling to Damascus, which was an ancient city located 60 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. I've included a map for you, and you can reference that. You might find it along the right-hand side of your map. It was about 160 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Damascus was the capital of Syria, and it was ruled by the Romans but had a large population of Jews. So here we have Saul traveling, and along the way, a sudden flash of light blinded him. Now, this was the first of six visions to be seen by Saul or Paul, as you might know him, in the book of Acts. In this particular vision, Jesus confronted him, yet the people traveling with Saul saw nothing. They could hear a voice, but they could not see who was speaking. And at the time, Saul fell to his knees, we're told. Did you notice that? Whether as a sign of reverence or just sheer fear of not being able to see, he fell to his knees. In verse 3, and this is a fill-in-the-blank, friend, in verse 3, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Oh, clearly, now Jesus had already ascended to heaven. So who was Jesus referencing? His followers. That's who. His followers, those who believe in Jesus Christ. An attack on the followers of Jesus was a direct attack on Jesus himself. And Jesus instructed Saul to rise and enter the city and then wait for further instructions. Now Saul gathered himself up, but he could see nothing. And those traveling with him heard the instructions, so they led Saul by the hand of Damascus. Now I want you to picture it for a moment, friend. Saul, a man of position, a man of power, he is suddenly helpless. Now I imagine him stumbling to his feet, tripping down the rocky road to Damascus. He was now completely vulnerable completely dependent on those around him for help. And during those moments of suffering, he reflected. He was out without his sight for three days. And during that time, we are told he fasted. Now, fasting is essentially giving up food or drink or both, sometimes other things, for a period of time in order to focus your thoughts on God. So what do you think those three days were like? He couldn't see but I bet he could hear the whispers of those who had traveled with him. Do you think he told them of what he had seen in his vision? What do you think they said to him? Did they call him crazy? Did they want to hear more? Did they seek more information about Jesus? Let me ask you this. Do you think Saul immediately repented for his past? Did he question God and his judgment? Did he plead for his eyesight? Now, remember, at the time, he didn't know that his sight would return in just three days. He was just awaiting instructions. During that time, did he promise great things in exchange for restoration? I imagine there were moments of intense emotion. In my mind, there's tears over what he had done and what he had witnessed. I imagine that he suffered greatly emotionally, physically, And spiritually, as he reflected on his life. Without his sight, he was free from distractions. And that's a fill in the blank. Without his sight, he was free from distractions. Without food or drink, his thoughts were clear. His thoughts were clear. And friend, in those quiet moments, he heard from God. Let's see what happened. We're going to read Acts 9, picking up in verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Behold, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much hard he did for thy, he did to thy saints in Jerusalem. He has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him much. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I will show him. Did you hear that, friend? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... There fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Oh, friend, how I love this story. After three long days— The disciple Ananias went to Saul and did just as he was told in a vision from the Lord. He laid his hands on Saul, and Saul's vision was restored. He was restored! Just think of this, friend. Ananias was one of the leaders of the church in Damascus. Saul was known as a persecutor of church leaders. Just three short days earlier, Ananias would have been one of Saul's targets. Yet here, we see Ananias' faith in God as he sought out this blind man and prayed over him. Saul immediately began preaching in Damascus, proclaiming the good news, telling everyone he encountered about Jesus, his Savior. And as a side note, Paul himself retold this very story in Acts 22, 3-16, if you're interested in reading that. From that moment on, and this is in your notes, here comes a fill in the blank, from that moment on, Paul was a changed man. Acts thirteen nine tells us that Saul, who was also known as Paul, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, so there you know, right there, he was a changed man, and he was now known by a new name. Much like Abraham and Jacob of the Old Testament, when they dedicated or rededicated themselves to God and his purpose, their names were changed to reflect their new relationship and or their new role in life. The name Saul, and this is your note, it's in there, we'll fill in the blank. The name Saul means prayed for, but the name Paul means humble. It means humble. Paul became a humble servant of God. Now, Paul spent the next 20 years traveling as a missionary. He spent all of his time teaching and starting new churches. He is very well known for his letters. In fact, many of those letters are now books of the Bible as part of the New Testament. Paul is credited with writing 13 books of the Bible. Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus and Philemon. Many also credit him with writing Hebrews, though the author is not confirmed. Paul was not known as a good-looking man, and even though he was highly intelligent and well-educated and spoke multiple languages, he was not known to be an eloquent speaker. But friend, he was dedicated and he was relentless. Here's the thing about Paul, and this is a fill-in-the-blank for you. In his early life, he was literally a torturer. He sought out followers of Jesus to punish and or kill. And he, Friend, he saw no issue with it. Yet in his later years, and again, another fill in the blank, in his later years, he was the one who endured the torture. He endured the torture. And let me just give you a quick summary of that. He survived three shipwrecks. Three shipwrecks. He survived five painful beatings of 39 lashes each. And let me tell you why it's so important, the number 39 there. He survived five painful beatings each time, 39 lashes Forty lashes was breaking an ancient law of Moses, and forty lashes was also the number of lashes needed to kill someone. So they, when they beat them 39 times, they were literally beating the person to within, within an inch of their life. Paul also survived an additional three beatings with a Roman rod, which means he was stripped and flogged. He survived a public stoning that nearly killed him, and he was imprisoned at least five times that we know of, possibly more. In fact, scholars estimate that Paul may have spent half of his time in jail because of all the controversies that he caused. Many of his letters, you know, the ones that we know as the books of the Bible, they were written while he was in jail. Very interesting life. But let's take a closer look at one of those times in his life. Turn with me. A little forward here, we're going to go forward a few chapters to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. I'll begin reading in verse 16. Acts 16, 16. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them, and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a common, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, friend, let's unpack here. Let's dig in. First, let's start with the girl. The girl. She was a demon-possessed slave girl. The term spirit of divination is a term from Greek mythology that literally means a python spirit. Now, keep in mind that this story is recorded during a day and time when Greek mythology was widely accepted and believed. As such, the python was a snake that supposedly guarded the oracle at Delphi, meaning that this girl was used as a medium. According to their belief system, this slave girl was in contact with demons who could and who would predict the future. And these men, they held her as a slave and made money off of her off of her tricks. She was owned by the people who made money from her fortune-telling talent. So what exactly was this girl doing? Well, one day, as Paul and his friends were traveling to their place of prayer, this slave girl zeroed in on them, and she followed them. And here's a fill-in-the-blank for you. She kept crying out, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. The way of salvation. Now, she didn't just point this out or shout it out once. No, she followed them for days, repeating herself over and over. And then, and here's your next fill in the blank. In verse 18, we're told that Paul was greatly annoyed. Yep, Paul was greatly annoyed. Annoyed by what, you might ask? Well, that's a good question. After all, they were, in fact, bondservants of the Most High And they were proclaiming the way of salvation. So was this little demon-possessed slave girl shouting out the truth? And if so, why did it annoy Paul? Well, scholars actually differ on this controversial topic. Some scholars believe that by using the phrase most high God, that she was giving credence to the idea that there was more than one God. They often just refer to God as the most high. Now, other scholars believe that her act of shouting out their cause, like telling what they were doing, was not very helpful since it was driven by a demon. It was not Christ-ordained, and that was annoying. Or others believe that the demon was actually taunting Paul and his group by following them and snidely poking at them as they tried their best to continue with their plan to convert Gentiles to Christianity. I don't know, as they were talking and teaching and preaching in the churches and the synagogues amongst the people, it might be strange to have a well-known demon-possessed little girl following them around shouting at them. But whatever the reason, we're very clear on what Paul did about the issue. In the name of Jesus Christ, and this is a fill-in-the-blank, he commanded that evil spirit to leave her body, to leave her body, acts 1618 says and it came out at that very moment wow just wow right but it's what happens next that is the real reason for us digging into this particular story when her masters saw that the slave girl could no longer perform her fortune-telling act they were angry really really angry they wanted revenge so they grabbed up paul and silas and they dragged them to the authorities Verses 20 and 21 say, and these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. Hold up. Mm-hmm. They attacked Paul and Silas on account of them being Jewish? Mm-hmm. Yep. And here's what you need to know. This was a racial issue. The emperor Claudius had issued an order around that time that said there were to be no Jews allowed in Rome, and that's according to Acts 18.2. Damascus was a Roman-ruled city with a Roman government. Technically, it was the law that Roman citizens were not to engage in any foreign religions that had not been approved by the government. Christianity was tolerated, but only to a point because it had not been approved by the government. And you know what's interesting? Luke, who was writing this, and Timothy were known travelers with Paul and Silas during this time period. They were not of Jewish descent. They were not apprehended. As I've mentioned before, Luke was not Jewish. He was Greek, a Gentile. Timothy, too, half Gentile. Unlike Paul and Silas, they were not being punished. They were not being brought before the chief magistrates. Just Paul and Silas were. Now, who are the magistrates, you might be saying? Well, Every Roman colony had two of these men serving as judges. They were the local government. And in this case, the claim that Paul and Silas were creating confusion and chaos in the city, well, it was simply a false claim. It didn't matter. The magistrates did not investigate—that's a fill-in-the-blank— the the magistrates did not investigate the charges or hold a hearing— or give Paul and Silas a chance to defend themselves. They didn't investigate, they didn't hold a hearing, and they didn't give them a chance to defend themselves. Instead, they beat them with rods. Rods. And they allowed the crowds to control the outcome and threw them in jail. Let me also point this out. Beating them, in this case, was simply illegal. Excuse me. Beating them was illegal, They had not been convicted of any crime, but that didn't seem to matter. Imagine it, friend. No trial, no conviction, just punishment. The guards who beat them would have taken multiple beating rods and tied them together in order to inflict the maximum amount of pain with every strike. Sadly, this was not Paul's first experience with a beating such as this, but you have to wonder, as these beatings occurred, Did his mind flash back to the times when he was the one punishing, inflicting, encouraging, and torturing a Christian or Christ follower? Do you think that he remembered when he shouted for more punishment, condemned others without conviction, or rioted on behalf of a corrupt government or leadership? Oh, the irony. Has that ever happened to you, friend? Convinced of a situation or an outcome? And then later convicted for your part in it? Oh, how Paul and Silas were tortured. And then they were thrown into the stocks. That's a fill in the blank. They were thrown into the stocks, the innermost portion of the prison. Now, Roman prisons were known to have three compartments. Let me tell you about it. One compartment was light and open and included the opportunity to breathe in fresh air. First time offenders, for sure. The second compartment was in the interior of the prison, shut off by strong iron bars and locks. Now, keep in mind that prisons would have been built into the side of a hill. They were constructed of stone, and these cave-like entrances would have led to a second, more secure prison cell. The third compartment or cell was like a dungeon, a place where people were put to die. It was the most secure place within the prison, buried deep within the cave or the stone structure, And this was where they put Paul and Silas. Upon entry, their feet were placed in stocks. You can imagine it. It was medieval style, with wooden supports and iron locks. Their feet would have been placed and stretched in such a way as to cause constant agony. This form of torture was unnecessary, considering the placement of their cell and those strong security measures already in place. But it was used to further punish the prisoner. And in this case, our prisoners, Paul and Silas, Who had not been tried, they had not been convicted. They were just being punished in the worst possible way. What do you think that was like, my friend, for Paul and Silas? Let's find out. We're going to read Acts 16, picking up in verse 25. But at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And then suddenly there comes a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all of the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Wow! I mean, imagine this, friend. Just as we imagined Paul when he was blind and fasting, we see a picture of Paul, and this time Silas too, praying and singing praises to God. Stop and think about that for a minute. Deep within the cave of rocks, A beautiful melody, a song of praise, is echoing through the prison. The other prisoners, they stop and listen. A few of them might have even joined in. The darkness, well, that didn't matter. The pain and suffering of their physical beings didn't matter. They were worshiping God. They were leading others to Christ. They were ministering in their period of suffering. And then, suddenly... The ground began to shake, and the rocks around them probably rumbled, and stones fell loudly to the ground all around them, in the dark, the doors began to rattle, and the locks began to break, and then the doors opened, and the restraints that bound them fell to the ground. Immediately, it says, immediately, they were all free. Not just Paul and Silas, but everyone's chains came free. Oh, the joy you would feel, the elation of freedom. Let's see what happens next. We're picking up in Acts 16, verse 27. And it says, And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Oh, goodness. Imagine that guard being rattled awake by an earthquake. Have you felt one before? It'll startle you. And when he came to his senses, he realized that the prison doors were now all open. And he feared for his life. His job was to keep the prisoners inside the cells. When his bosses realized that the doors had all opened, I mean, no one would believe that they all opened miraculously, right? Well, when when they figured it out, he would be put to death for sure. Acts 12.19 tells us that that's what happens if the jailer lets the prisoners free by accident. So instead of waiting to face the humiliation and painful execution that he would be condemned to, he decided to take matters into his own hands. He was going to kill himself. But what happened next might surprise you. Let's continue reading. Acts 16, picking up in verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights, he, the jailer, and He called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household, and he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Oh, such a sweet ending to such a tragic situation. Can you hear it in your mind, friend? Paul calling out to the guard, knowing that the guard was responsible for all the prisoners and not wanting him to die before he had a chance to tell him the good news. Can you picture it? The guard, grabbing a torch, running through the prison, climbing over the debris, wondering if he was hearing things. Was that a voice calling to him? Wondering why anyone who survived this earthquake would choose not to run. Is it possible that these prisoners are still there? And when he reached Paul and Silas, he fell down before them. Oh, the picture of this friend falling down as an act of surrender. And then I imagine that jailer reaching fumbling for his keys to unlock the shackles, to unlock the stocks, helping Paul and Silas regain their footing, shouldering them as he led them out of the dungeon, hoisting them over the piles of rocks, the jailer's eyes filled with tears. I imagine him confessing a lifetime of sin in those moments. And I imagine Paul and Silas listening intently, comforting this man, Though they were physically hurt, it was the jailer who needed healing. And as they reached the outdoors, the jailer said, and here's your fill in the blank, friend. The jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Oh, what must I do to be saved? Found in verse 30. Oh, that's the question that every Christian longs to hear, isn't it? Just believe, they said. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your fill in the blank. Just believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the sweet moment, friend, as they prayed with that jailer. And the jailer was so excited that he couldn't wait to share this experience with his family. All of his family, his servants, his guests, they would hear the gospel that night. Those who could understand and believe were welcomed into the family of God. What a celebration. But the story doesn't end there. After converting and baptizing the jailer and his family, Paul and Silas were fed. They were patched up and returned to prison. The next day, the chief magistrate sent word through their policemen that Paul and Silas were to be released. That's a fill in the blank. The next day, the chief magistrate sent word that Paul and Silas were to be released. Now, Paul, in verse 37, said, They have beaten us in public without trial men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. Remember, Paul had not been given the opportunity to defend himself. If he had, he would have informed the magistrates that he himself was half Roman. Remember, birthright from his father, as I told you in the beginning of the lesson. Silas, too, was a Hellenistic Jew as well as a Roman citizen. So to inflict corporal punishment on a Roman citizen, well, that was a serious crime. And those magistrates would have been immediately removed from office and their privileges would have been revoked. That was that a big deal. So the magistrates, they went and they begged and they appealed to Paul and urged him to leave the city. And Paul and Silas did just that. They left the prison and they went to consult with the other disciples, eventually leaving town. This story, a story of suffering and reflection and redemption, well, I, I think it's a story we can relate to. Then here comes a fill-in-the-blank, and I don't want you to miss it, friend. No matter what our past contains, it does not determine our future. No matter what our past contains, it does not determine our future. Paul, for example, became the very thing, the very person that he had previously despised. As time went on, he became known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. Now, another fill-in-the-blank. If Paul had not gone through a period of suffering, if he had not gone through a period of suffering, he would not have taken the time to reflect and repent. If he had not repented, he would not have been restored. God had a plan for Paul's life, just as he has a plan for yours. The suffering— was necessary in order to reach the restoration. Remember, God told Ananias, He is a chosen instrument of mine. And that's back in Acts 9, verse 15. He is a chosen instrument of mine. Oh, to hear those words. Paul should not have been tortured and placed in that prison. He should not have endured the suffering. He was a Roman citizen, and what was happening to him was illegal. However, God allowed him to experience that pain and suffering in order to minister to the other prisoners to the prisoner to the prison guard and to the guard's family that night God prepared Paul he protected Paul and then he used Paul for his glory What is God doing in your life right now friend to prepare you for your future What is he doing You my friend are also a chosen instrument of God. How would God use your period of suffering for his glory? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you right now in a spirit of thanksgiving. We thank you for allowing us to experience the suffering in our lives so that it reminds us that we need to reflect and repent so that we can be close to you, Lord. I ask right now that you watch over those that are listening and help them see the moments in their life where they need to stop and reflect and repent in order that you might draw them closer, Lord. Let us be used mightily for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Friend, if you're looking for daily encouragement through Scripture, I hope you'll consider following Truth Plus Grace on both Instagram and Facebook. I post daily Scripture there. I hope you'll find it encouraging. We're also looking for ways to connect as a community of people going through this study together. Please check your email for more information or regular updates. To be added to the email distribution list, you can email tiffany at com. Again, that's tiffany at truthplusgrace.com. And truth plus grace is just spell it out, all one, one word there. I hope you've enjoyed this lesson, and I look forward to being with you again soon.